Hello, you're listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. We are a general interest independent bookstore located in the Los Feliz neighborhood of Los Angeles, California. This year, because of the coronavirus pandemic, we've had to close our store and cancel in-person events. But Skylight is your neighborhood bookstore, and we are finding ways to create community even while we're far apart. In the coming weeks, we'll be putting out lots of new audio content to help you discover new books, connect with authors, and check in with your favorite booksellers. To learn more about how you can help keep Skylight alive, please visit our website at skylightbooks.com or check out our social media accounts on Twitter and Instagram. You can subscribe to the podcast on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Thank you for listening and enjoy. Rochista Kakpur nonfiction has appeared in many sections of the New York Times, the LA Times, and Book Forum, and many others. Born in Tehran and raised in the Los Angeles area, Kakpur currently lives in New York City. Brown album album is Kakpur's first collection of essays on grappling with what it means to be Middle Eastern, Iranian, an immigrant, and a refugee in our current country. Miriam Gerba is a writer, a spoken word artist, a visual artist. She has written for Time, PCT, and The Rumpus, among others. Her latest book is part memoir, part true crime, and combines humor and honesty to describe Miriam's coming of age as a queer mixed race Chicana in Santa Maria, California. Mean was a finalist for the Lambda Literary Award in LGBTQ nonfiction and a finalist for the Publishing Triangle Judy Grant Award for lesbian nonfiction. Thank you, and I'll, I'll let you two take it away. Thank you. Um, hi, Skylight. It's so nice to be here, I guess, in its own way. Um, I was just telling um, Maddie and Eve that this is probably like my fifth fifth or sixth event at Skylight over the years. Um, definitely a different type of event, but I just love being affiliated with Skylight in any way. It's, it's really my favorite bookstore, certainly on the West Coast. Um, and they've been so supportive and wonderful. So I look forward to being there in person um, in not too long. So um, like the game plan is I'll just read a very a very short essay and then Miriam and I'll have a discussion and then we'll open up to Q&A and like we said you can write your questions in the chat we love Q&A like ready for whatever you want um I'm gonna read a short essay here that um is a little bit of a lesser known essay of mine it, it was one of the later essays and it's been in one anthology and I read it in um, Seattle Hugo House originally. Hugo House has a reading series where they actually kind of like commission writers to write a special piece for their events. And so I just wrote a short piece. It's, you know, that was, that's what they asked for. And it ended, I thought I was gonna write kind of a light piece, but it ended up like some of my pieces quite heavy in the end. I mean, I have light pieces too, but around this period of my life, which was about three years ago, everything was coming out really, really heavy and intense. So this essay is called, it's in the second half of the book, and it's called 13 Ways of Being an Immigrant. And it's episodic, so I'll just like read them, in, you know, one, two, three, till 13. Okay. 
One, the year is 1983 and Cabbage Patch Kids are the height of their popularity. You want one, but you know your parents can't afford it. A couple of years into living in this country and they keep telling you they will go back to Iran soon, that the war will be over, that the revolution will be done, that you will be a ref refugee and alien no more. But for now, there's little money. At school, you know you are one of the few kids with less access to things, and you know the others are not from here either. You work with them to get out of ESL, and you try to act like the kids who belong here, who have money. One way to do this is to have a Cabbage Patch Kid doll, but this seems impossible. Still, your mom takes you to Toys R Us, which seems like the greatest place on earth, second only to Disneyland, which you've only heard about since it also costs too much to go. At Toys R Us, several aisles are devoted to Cabbage Patch dolls. If it were a farm, this area would be the Cabbage Patch. Their chubby faces peer at you from behind the plastic of their boxes. You have not considered which one you want because you don't think you will ever get one. Maybe an invitation at some point, one without a signature on the butt, which is how you've heard you know they're real, true Cabbage Patch kids. The real ones come with butt tattoos. You are looking at them longingly when your mother points to a section down the aisle. There is a big sign, sale. There is a whole section of Cabbage Patch Kids on sale, it turns out, and your mother is telling you they are in her budget, but she doesn't think they are the right ones for you. You are elated, then confused. Why would she think that? And then you look at them, one by one, row after row. What do they have in common? They are black, all of them, the ones on sale. You think about it. They could be your adopted child, why not? You're still too young to know how babies are made, so you don't think much deeper. You reach out to a pigtailed black one in a yellow tracksuit, and, and you tell your mother, this is your daughter. Her name turns out to be Clover Stephanie, and you still have her somewhere in storage. Her cheek is a bit scraped, and it looks white underneath. It bothers you, that fact. It bothers you also that you have Clover only because she was on sale, because she was black, but that was an important first lesson about America, so maybe it was worth it. Two, you want to be a good student, the best, in fact. One way to do this is to follow directions. In kindergarten, this is a big goal of yours, since English is still new to you. One rule is that at lunchtime, you must eat your dessert last. Dessert is usually a piece of fruit, but apparently it is hard for the kids to obey this rule. Not you. You always get it right. Your best friend is a blonde girl named Angela, whom all the teachers love. She doesn't always play by the rules, but she always gets away with it. One day she eats her cantaloupe before her spaghetti. This shocks you. You try to tell her to stop it, that she can't do this, but she does it. Without any fear, a smile even. You tell her to stop or you will have to tell on her. She smiles with a mouthful of cantaloupe. She is fearless. You tell her to stop right now because you are truly about to tell. She laughs, more cantaloupe on her tongue. You can't take it anymore. You tell on her. The teaching assistant is a big man named Mr. Mondo, and he is tough on the rules. He will take care of this. You walk right up to him, and as much as it pains you, you point right at her. Angela is eating her dessert first, Mr. Mondo, you say. At this point, Angela is still a look of fright on her face. She is not taunting you anymore. Good, you think. This might teach her. Mr. Mondo walks right to you. He asks her if she did it. She nods, sadly. Sorry, she says. He says nothing and pauses. Then he turns to you and he looks angry. He says one word, snitcher. He walks away and Angela smiles and you begin to cry, 
And after you learn what that word means, though from the start, you know it's bad, once again, you learn a lesson about America. Three, your best friend in second grade lives in the good part of town. So does almost everyone at your elementary school. You live in the bad part of town. No one you know lives there. Your dad drives a Pinto while your best friend's dad drives a Rolls Royce. She hates it. You go to her house. It is a mansion in the hills. She has so many expensive toys, numerous Cabbage Patch dolls, all white, even though she is Vietnamese. She was born in America, unlike you. Her dad drives a truck for a living while yours is a professor. Another lesson you one day realize. Four. The usual substitute teacher, the one everyone in your grade sees most often, makes funny jokes, and one is that he calls you my Iranian sweetheart. You hate this because you know Americans don't like Iran and you don't want to be singled out and teased, especially not because of being Iranian. But he always does this. Another teacher sticks his thumb in your mouth when he spots you sticking your tongue out at a friend. You don't know what it means, but it feels wrong. Years later, a science teacher offers you massages after class. You decline. A few grades down, a German teacher tells you, you are so beautiful, he whispers it to you and you never come near him again. The same year a librarian tells you about male and female plugs too eagerly, demonstrating over and over. Another teacher laughs when students say, you look like Anne Frank, and makes a joke about him looking like a German soldier. You remember his bad breath on your face as he laughs at you all over you. Are there Jews still in Iran, he asks you, but you don't answer. In America, adults are inappropriate, you realize. Maybe a lesson about this place, but maybe not. Five, you become editor-in-chief of your high school paper, your one and only dream in life as far as you know it. For two years, you have this post. You love nothing more. When your advisor is fired, a gay man, you are incensed and you walk out and your staff follows. You are now seen as a rebel. This somehow seems very American. Your fearlessness also seems very American. You are blonde Angela with the cantaloupe. You must belong here if you think you can afford to leave. Six, you go to college in New York, your dream, and you get your first internship at the Village Voice. You're a teenager and a scholarship kid and you have no money and it does not occur to you that teach students ask their parents for money. You're left wondering how you can make this work so you learn to jump trains. Another scholarship kid teaches you you get good at this. You go to your internship three times a week and use some change for dinner, Pop-Tarts from the vending machine. And then you jump the train back. Part of it is you must look well-dressed to do this. You pretend you're dressing for your internship, but you are doing it because they suspect you less if you look fancy. One time you get caught, a female conductor. She tells you she's been watching you for months. You have no money to give her, so she tells you your luck is up and she's kicking you off. It's midnight and the stop is Mount Vernon, a bad neighborhood. You are let out there and an old man offers you a drive home. You have no other choice. You stop jumping trains. Seven, sometimes you stay out all night. You miss the last train back to the college upstate on purpose, knowing the next one is at 6 a.m. No worries. The clubs are open all night. You go to them and lose yourself in them. In America, you fit in at clubs more than anywhere else. They are for you. It's there that people accept you most. Very little matters in the forever night of a club, and you learn then to trust darkness more than light. Eight, you go on your year abroad to Oxford. You joke that you are doing it to dry up from drugs and drinking, but this is somewhat true. 
But there you find more clubs and more drugs and drinking. They call you American Express, the group of boys you sleep with. You're amazed they call you American. Nine. At age 19, you are raped. At age 20, you are raped again. This strikes you as something that happens to American girls, a rite of passage. You tell no one, which American girls seem to do too, or not to. 10. You see 9-11 outside your East Village window, and you remember your first nightmares as a recent immigrant in the 80s. Men in dark clothing with machine guns and machetes loose on your city streets. They were terrorists, and you were the hostages. In your dream, it's always in Iran. In your dream, you are safe in America, but not in reality, you realize. Your old world has come for you. This is what being an American looks like now, you think, as you take your shoes off in an airport security line for the first time. 11. You become a published author, an American author. No, an Iranian-American author. Never does the hyphen matter more than when you are an author, it seems. 12. In your teens, you contemplate suicide. In your 20s, you contemplate suicide. In your 30s, you contemplate suicide. Before turning 40, you wonder how many more times you will contemplate suicide. You wondered if you'd have been happier in that other life you were meant to live, the one where you stayed in Iran and maybe got married and had kids and maybe never became a writer. Maybe you would have already died of suicide. 13. You were 19 years an American. You became an American in November 2001, and you realized you could have had a child in that time. You have no kids, no husband, no home of your own, no roots, no real reason to be here. Trump becomes president, and your old country is on the list of one of those six countries of a Muslim ban. You are suddenly a Muslim. No one doubts your brownness anymore. You realize that every day is a lesson in America, the real America, the violent one. You remember blonde Angela with a cantaloupe glistening in her laughing mouth, and you think for the first time she was maybe laughing at you. Why would you think you'd get anywhere? On Facebook, you beg your white friends to do better. You ask them for ideas on where to live. You try to imagine another future they have. You wonder if your Americanness is forever and if you will die an American. You realize it might be just as hard to shake being an American as it were to become one in the first place. You realize with joy that you will die an American. You realize with agony that you will die an American. You realize with horror and confusion and fear and disbelief that you will die an American. Somehow it is harder to imagine than dying. And that's, that's it. <laughs> Thank you. Oh. Um, Miriam, do you want to this is where like Miriam walks on the little like, platform and like, <laughs> I'm like, hi, Miriam. Hi. <laughs> so I'm so enthusiastic and so, um, I'm super elated about, um, about Brown Album. I'm really, 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 really happy that Thanks. this book is being um, released into the world of books. The world of books needs this book. And like, one of the things that brings me so much joy about your work, Parchista, even though there is like a lot of, 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 of darkness and, and pain in what you write, is that like, 
so frequently when I read about the United States and about California in particular, I feel like I'm often reading about a place I don't know. It doesn't seem like home and it seems unfamiliar when like California is rendered through sort of like the white gaze. Um, but when you write about California, it's presented to me in this way that finally feels familiar. And so okay. you are one of those writers who, who, who delivers my home state to me in a way that's recognizable. Um, and that's, that's like one of the things that brings me um, so much pleasure about um, your prose and, and your essays. I, I love how you um, engage uh, with geography and with popular culture too like when you're reading about the cabbage patch kid i was thinking about my own um cabbage patch trauma because yeah. uh, uh when when i was a kid i had a, a white best friend who um invited me to join girl scouts with her right? right and like i had this feeling too once i had joined girl scouts i was like finally i'm an american do you know what i mean i'm with all these fucking brownies like we're americans <laughs> and like we built gingerbread houses together but i didn't last that long i dropped out of girl scouts because i wasn't good at selling the cookies i only sold like five boxes because right. my parents wouldn't let me go door to door because they were afraid i was gonna get kidnapped yeah, fuck no exactly right and so <laughs> who sold the most fucking cookies? The Girl Scout troop leader's daughter. Yeah. And for selling the most cookies, she got a prize. And the prize was a Cabbage Patch Kid. What? A blonde Cabbage Patch Kid. And I was horrified because I wanted that fucking blonde Cabbage Patch Kid. And of course I didn't win it. And of course she bought it for her daughter. And of course oh. the whole thing was rigged. And my father turned it into an object lesson about nepotism. Right? Like that. <laughs> and I was like eight. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> and, so, and, so, and so I'm so happy that you shared that you shared your cabbage patch kit. I mean that that you shared that essay that began with with cabbage patch trauma because I think a lot of us of that generation uh, can relate. So um, so so I'm gonna dive in and ask you about the final essay in Brown Album. Um, because it mentions Didion. <laughs> favorite. Um, and so I love that you tweeted, one of the top 100 most exhausting things about white people is their obsession with Joan Didion. And you drag her a bit in that essay. And I wanted to ask, have your feelings about that subject matter changed at all? Well, so that last essay that Miriam was talking about is like, like, a really long essay it's like a 20 page or more essay and it was basically designed not to be published but it was like an essay that I've just been compiling over the years with all this like leftover trauma and in, in fact even sort of contradicts some of the earlier essays in this book because it's kind of like saying like here is an unpublishable really raw essay that's not like a perfect New York Times essay you know and so one of the, the incidents that sparked the Brown Album essay was the fact that I nearly lost my job for tweeting that tweet that you just read. That like I did a joking tweet about how like it's so exhausting that white people just like blindly revere Joan Didion. And the kids in my low res MFA, by the way, I was a very popular teacher at this low res MFA, but it was a very white place in Maine. They literally reported my tweet to the administrators. And I mean, one of the administrators was a black woman who just was like, this is fucking ridiculous, I'm so sorry. And then, but then the other administrators were white men and they were like, 
okay, well, we, you know, they were pretty upset. And like, we had to have a whole conversation about it. And like, I had to have a whole talk with the students. It was so bizarre. And I just realized over the years, like anytime I have critiqued Joan Didion, and I've always done it politely. In fact, I teach her and I say that in the essay too. Mm -hmm. Like I teach her all the time because I think like, like she is someone people can learn from fairly easily. And it's like, she's an important writer. I don't want people to not be like, I, don't, I want them to know her, but like for me, Joan Didion and, and, and Elif and I were talking about this in my other reading last week, she had the same feeling. I, I wonder how many brown people had this feeling. I always felt very alienated when she would write, especially about California, because it was not my California yeah. at all. And it was a California that was like scrubbed of race, unless race was there to suit her argument. So black people became a prop or migrants, brown people became a prop. So she had this, but then mostly it's just white people, like glamorous white people, like hanging out at the beach and like hanging out with celebrities or like being political in this like kind of safe waspy way. So this is was really stressful for me reading Joan Didion because it was like, she was writing about something that I should like and I felt so close to, but I would just read it and I'd feel so alienated. And I just realized it was a lot of like wasp writers, mm -hmm. like for me just felt so icy and detached. And then later when I read Didion's like, you know, more personal nonfiction about her own life and her daughter. I mean, she's a daughter named Quintana Roo. It's so crazy. It's so problematic. So obviously, like, she must not know a single Mexican person, right? Like, someone would have been like, are you kidding? Your daughter's name? Babysitters were Mexicans. It's like, her nannies were Mexican. It's <laughs> But it's like, I just feel like it's such a weird issue for writers because like she's one of those untouchables. Yeah. And there's a few women that are untouchables. Like usually it's all the male canonical writers. But there's like, you know, I, I knew an old writer who used to say like, you know, like Didion was the only one. Like you can't insult mm -hmm. a woman, you can't insult. So it's just became a sore subject for me. So even, even though I think she's skilled, like I find her work really cold. And I think people start to realize that when she'd write about her family because she'd have very weird reactions to her like, husband's death or daughter's death and she didn't investigate that and she talked about it but it was still like just weird I don't know and it's just to me like a real symbol of a certain like affluent east coast yeah. whiteness that then comes to California and tries to co-opt it but like gets it so wrong and like no one dares say anything because in California we have such a low self-esteem our whole state is like constantly shit on <laughs> for like I don't even know what at this point so I don't know. It's it's yeah. I had to I had to go there, and I love that you recently went there too. I'm so happy. It was like our brains. I love it. I came after her with my with my with my whatever with my pen. Um. <laughs> uh, so um, one of the one of the things that I really appreciate about that essay, and I'm going to keep talking about that essay, is that um, it 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 describes or. I, I think of that essay as like a rejection of whiteness. Yeah. People repeatedly make these gestures to offer it to you because I think that that's in some ways how whiteness works. Whiteness will come try to sort of invite us into it, right? Yeah. And it's always a trap because it's, it's yeah. going to betray you in the end. But there are sort of like these white olive branches that get extended to you and you reject them, right? Exactly. Um, like people will say, well, you know, you, you are white passing or... Uh, attempt to co-opt you in, in any variety of ways. And so one of the things that, that, I, that I consider quite a bit, I, I, just turn, uh, I just turn this idea over in my head a lot, is the difference between being white versus being white passing. And for some, there's no distinction. 
for some, there is a fine distinction. And so I'm curious whether or not you draw that distinction between a person being white versus white passing. Um, like how, how do you conceive of those, those two differences? Well, I think like all the great discussions around this have been really concentrated in like African-American literature and even like the vocabulary that we use of passing really has come out of those communities and the idea of like light skin versus dark skin. And then like mo the most sophisticated discussion of all to me is really like colorism and things like that. And so like, I think a, a really important thing to realize is like, you know, of course, like privileges that are afforded to you by even like, by not choosing to pass, but just being able to. So like, you know, just like someone scanning you and, and, and thinking in their head what they say to me often, which is like, oh, I wouldn't have thought your name was Porchista. You look like you could have been an Ashley or Jessica, which I'm just like, what the fuck does that even mean? Like, it's like a weird compliment that they give you and you're yeah. like, okay. But then the minute they hear that my name is foreign, and like they know I'm from Iran, suddenly an automatic brown wash just comes over me. And it's like, I just would love to see what happens in their brains, how they see you. Cause then they're like, oh, okay, she's ethnic, foreign. Okay, a person of color, boom. And then that happens. Whereas like, you know, but like I've also, like the passing is just interesting depending on where you are. Cause in New York, it's like Italian, Greek, Jewish, I get. Um, I'll get Puerto Rican here. Whereas in California, I would get Mexican. It's like, it just depends because I'll get mistaken for all sorts of different people of color too. And it's mainly because one of the reasons is, you know, there just simply weren't a big enough Iranian American population. And, and our migration here has been mostly recent in the last, you know, few decades. But the other reason I think, and this is a big part of the Brown album essay for me, is that Iranians sometimes themselves have chosen to pass, right? And, and they've had to probably because of a lot of racism and xenophobia and they have they've learned quickly that they can do that and so they themselves have perpetuated some of these problematic ideas of whiteness and for me in this essay I'm saying look enough is enough we're in like you know the 20 teens now now 2020 we can't just keep trying to pretend that oh yeah Iran the original Aryans oh yeah we're really white like hoping no one will tell on us like <laughs> come on everyone around us geographically knows we're brown. And in fact, I, you know, when I say this in the essay, there are black Iranians on the south coast of Iran. Iran is very similar to America. You have very fair-skinned Iranians, and then you have absolutely black Iranians. And it has everything to do with the slave trade. But you, there's so little literature written about Iranians and, um, and, and like black Iranians and brown Iranians and white Iranians. Just, there's not a lot written about race. And so at first I was going to do a much more like um, research different sociological essay, but then I just decided to make it as personal as the other essays. Um, and I didn't even try to place that essay. I was like, if I even try to place an essay about Iran and race, it's going to all, it, it's going to just break my heart because people are not even going to want to publish it. And so I just decided to do it on my own terms, an essay that I would never have published, but I put in a book. And luckily I had an editor who like respected that and like was fine with that being the title essay. So that was like a triumph for me. Yeah. At a place like Knopf, you know, I'm not at some like, you know, like edgy small indie. I happen to have the right editor at a very mainstream, like giant publisher. And she's just so smart that she was like, absolutely. Like, and that was great luck for me. Cause it's I, an angry essay too. Like, <laughs> I'm very mad. Well, I, I, I love, um, I love the, the title. Um, 
And then one of the other things that I, I wanted to ask you about, and this is something that I asked you about um, when we had our email correspondence and, and, and I interviewed you for BOM, but I wanna talk about uh, this question a little bit more. So um, one of, the, one of the, the qualities that your writing has that, that I also appreciate in addition to like that sort of geographic familiarity and, and, um, and sort of the way that you uh, revel in popular culture, and this is related to how you revel in popular culture, is the, the camp that you bring. There's just such a camp sensibility to your subject matter. And then there's also like a stylistic camp sensibility. And I had mentioned to you that like, it seems to me that diaspora, at least here in the United States, is frequently drawn to camp, right? Over and over and over. And, and the image to me that, that represents that and that kind of beats the heart of Brown Album is Bijan's um, 24 karat designer Colt revolver, right? It's just the epitome of violent camp and sort of frontier chic. Um, Second Amendment, gold-plated bullshit. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. so I, I was wondering if you could talk a bit about Diaspora's attraction to camp and why camp tends to become a playground for, for Persians, but for all of us who are here but don't feel quite welcome. The welcome mat is not set out for us. Yeah, I love that question so much when you asked it, and I just keep thinking about it because, so the thing that Miriam, in case you guys don't know that she's referring to, is so I have an essay called The King of Tarantulas, and it's about Bijan of the perfumes, and a lot of people have forgotten this because he, he died in 2011, and my essay was written then for his death, but he was basically this really, like, fancy perfume guy and very much in the, like, 80s spotlight, and he had a boutique on Rodeo Drive a bright yellow boutique where he had like a yellow sports car parked outside. And he was in all these ads with like Bo Derek when she wore braids and cornrows, so awful. And, um, and like Michael Jordan. And like, he was very much in the Hollywood scene and he was very over the top. Like his whole thing was like flashy yellow. And then he of course made this designer gun that was $10,000 at the time that was all gold and diamonds. And so when he died, I remembered that I'd been a shop girl in Rodeo Drive and I worked right across the street from his shop. And like Iranians would like go into his shop and sometimes come to the handbag store where I worked and they'd be like, they'd realize I was Iranian and be like, oh God, what, why are you a shop girl? Like it was so horrible. And, and so anyways, like this whole, there's a whole class thing, right? So like for me in this book, like I'm writing as an Iranian that's like not the sort of spotlit Iranians, like the Iranians of Shahs of Sunset who are like obviously affluent and like, of a different class than me. And I just think for outsiders in general, and so like diaspora is a perfect like aim here, is it like the, the one way to cope with the otherness is camp. Because it's a way to like, not just laugh at yourself, but create a fantasy world around yourself in which you can retreat. So camp for me was like an obvious thing. I was always into like dress up. I was always into fantasy worlds. I was like, I, I didn't even. You were a campy child. I was a totally campy you were child, totally, and I love oh campy God. children. I mean, it's it's, yeah. a, it's a queer red flag. <laughs> oh, I know. I mean, I was going to say I was like obsessed with drag queens when I was like five. I mean, I was super aware of them, and like I was so 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 obsessed. I was upset. I just thought like even anything that was like womanhood or glamorous women was just dress up. I didn't really believe like there was such a thing as a glamorous woman. So it didn't matter to me what gender took on that 
idea. Like to me, it was just like putting on a bunch of crazy makeup and wearing diamonds and furs and slinking around. It was so funny and crazy. I loved old Marilyn Monroe films. I loved all that stuff. And so it just, it was just another way to like retreat into this world of fantasy where you could invent yourself and you didn't have to worry about literally who you are, literally what your body was like, literally like all this shit that's like the actual burdens of like concrete existence. So for me, it was like a, just a very happy place. And then like, like when I became a teenager, I just immediately went to clubs in New York. I could not fit in at my fancy liberal arts school. I found it miserable, but I immediately started going to clubs in New York. And like, even when I was 19, I still remember there were Junior Vasquez nights, this club Philo that I love. And I was like super, like so rail thin and I had really short hair. And so I always just like people, I looked kind of like gender ambiguous and I would get really dressed up and like glitter and all that stuff. And I realized when I would, I would go every week to Junior Vasquez nights and I had all these friends there. And one time a guy told me, he said, we don't even know what you are. Like, what's your real name? Are you a girl? Are you a guy? What are you? Are you white? Are you what? And I was like, that was my fucking dream at 19 to have no identity that anyone could place on me. And I was just this like ball of glitter and I could just dance all night. It was the best thing in the world. So I think, yeah, I think that's like, you know, there's a much more Sontagian discussion yes. to have, but like in my heart, that's really it. Like, it's just to me, like, it was like a ma major coping strategy and how I like retain my mental health, I think. Um, so I was reading an interview that was led by Roxanne Gay. She was talking to um, Tressie McMillan Cottom and uh, they were discussing Thick and Roxanne closed by asking Tressie what she most likes about her voice. And I really like that question because we're rarely asked to compliment ourselves. And so um, I wanna ask you, what do you most like about your voice? Oh my God, I want to turn that around to you too. Ah. <laughs> That's a great, wow, what a great question. Um, you know, it's something actually I think about a lot. Like I think of my writing as very voice driven and I read out loud like everything I write, which I hope most writers do anyways, but I do it really consciously. Um, and so I think for me, like what I have to offer voice wise, but specifically nonfiction, because I have a very different mode in fiction. But in nonfiction, I think that like, you know, now it's become a little bit more ordinary, but like when I was writing the New York Times, for instance, and there wasn't a lot of diversity in the op-ed section where I was writing these like personal essays, the idea of being very high-low was like a totally weird thing. And I still remember like one of the copy edit guys like freaking out on the phone at me because there was too much slang in one of my essays. And he was like, he was so rude. I mean, he was like, this is way too street. We don't need it to sound street. And I was literally sitting there with my glasses and a cardigan, like in my little like university office. And I was like, honey, if you think I'm street, I wish you could look at what I look like, like right here, I'm in a fucking university. Like I'm a total nerd. There's no way, am I really too street for the New York Times? Like give me a break. So I would have to fight these crazy fights, get slang into these essays for the New York Times, just because like I always, I just speak that way. Like that's how people I know speak. Like, and that's how I grew up speaking. And, and then I went to college, I went to East Coast and like I got a little bit more refined, but I never lost that other thing. So for me to be very, everything about me is sort of high-low, you know? It's like very like, 
you know, scrappy kid who grew up on like McDonald's and still loves it. And then like the person who was like admitted into some ivory towers and like learned some of that shit. And so, and then there's also like East Coast, West Coast, and there's also American Iranian. So I just see a lot of like poles with me. And for me, it's always like this balancing act of how to get these like opposites to come. And that's really like my formula for a lot of these essays. It's like how to get these disparate elements to like come together. And, um, so I think that's it. And then for me also like humor and sadness always go together too. Mm -hmm. Like I can't write an essay that has no humor at all, but I can't, you know, I can't do the opposite either. So it's like, I guess that's just the main thing for me is just merging these two elements. Um, what about you? Cause I think like, I feel very in dialogue with you. Like when I read your stuff, I'm like, Oh, I love Miriam. Like, cause you're just, you are like a breath of fresh air for a lot of people in the literary world you know, because you are an experimental writer in so many ways, but also like very conversational. So those usually experimental is also so white in its own way, right? Isn't it though? Like it's so, I just um, only thing I hate the experimental writing world. <laughs> yeah, I typically just like the experimental writing world too. Um, I mean, I guess, I think one of the things I like the most about my voice is knowing that it annoys a lot of people. <laughs> I would like to think that I'm able to sort of shift politics through my voice, but I don't know that my voice will ever be that powerful. But if I can just annoy a white man for five minutes, I feel like I've done my job. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, <laughs> I do know. I love that. I feel like that's my, that's my greatest accomplishment. <laughs> so I wanted to ask you a question that pertains to the culture, to a moment in our culture. So, so like in many of your essays, you kind of uh, reference Karens. There are these Karens sort of lurking in your world. They lurk in the margins. You're yeah. bullied by them as a young person. They continue to persecute you once yeah. you enter academia. And, and, and then there's the Karens in the literary world. We know who these people are. Yeah. And so, um, so <laughs> what I wanted to ask you is like, uh, you know, they're really making a name for themselves lately and turning quarantine into quarantine, right? And like, yeah. I'm curious, why do you think that they are going so wild right now? Well, because everything is fucking inconvenient and Karen hates inconvenience. And like today on Twitter, it's funny you're asking this, but I've been thinking about it nonstop. Like I was mad at UPS and I just think I tweeted at UPS and I was like, oh, bitch, I'm being such a Karen right now. But then I immediately tweeted after, I was like, I wish I had a Karen around to handle this because UPS is not even answering my tweet. But if Karen was here, oh yeah, they're going to answer Karen and she would get the shit done. Actually, I like having a few of these Karens around because they get, they, you know, they talk to boss man and they get stuff done. So, I mean, yeah, it, this is the golden age of Karen because everything is inconvenient and like, it's very hard and like, they're all freaking out and like, you know, like feminism, right? White feminism became the thing of the last few years. As much as people want to pretend feminism included all of us, let's be real, <laughs> Hillary Clinton feminism was all about white feminism. And so that is to me like Karen land, right? And like, these women now feel more entitled than ever because they can be like, listen, I'm a woman, like blah, blah. But it's like, you're also like a white woman, by the way, but they don't want to hear that. Don't tell a Karen that, they'll get very mad. Um, they're just everywhere. And, but they're really, I'm glad you said the literary world. 
because I really think there's a ton of them in the literary world. Oh, totally. Like, you could see it already when like, okay, so you guys probably even know this about Miriam. She wrote like total masterclass in like book review this um, past winter, right? Was it winter or fall? Um, the American Dirt scenario. I don't even, I've like blocked that woman's name out. <laughs> Anyways, it was an amazing, it's like the best, best book review probably like ever written. And when we, and I was discussing it a lot with you on Twitter and social media and all that. And like these Karens would pop up all over the place to defend American Dirt. It was like the Karen book club book, right? And they were it was just- like whack-a-mole. It was yeah. like whack a Karen. Like they're just popping out of everywhere. And you're like, I can't keep up. Like <laughs> I know, it was so crazy. And it was so important for them because when a Karen has a woman of color, you know, in their head, she was a woman of color that they really, um, you know, are cradling at their bosom, at their, you know, Karen bosom. Um, they do not like it when other women of color come and scrap and they, they need to like be in charge of policing that whole thing. And so they did not like that we were being mean about American dirt. And then, you know, they wrote a bunch of shitty blogs and all that. I mean, obviously they were wrong and maybe they realized it. I don't know. But the, the thing about Karens is they think they're so right, but they're always wrong. And they are so entitled and they don't even realize it. And it's just, it's out of control. Because right now with the whole Karen discussion, you have so many of these Karens literally being like, Karen is a slur. They're all over the place. <laughs> it's like every fucking person of color on earth is like, bitch, it is not a slur. Like, please, come on. Like, are you kidding me? But, you know, I, I just saw another thing on my Facebook page yesterday about, like, all these, like, writer women being like, well, it's really problematic, this slur, Karen. And I was like, I wanted to go in, but then I was like, fucking slur. They're awful. Oh, God. But it really um, yeah, there's, there, there are, like, yeah. I mean, if you encounter a Karen apologist, then it's a Karen. Do you yeah. know what I mean? Like, yeah. <laughs> men, men can be Karens too. I mean, oh, anyone. my dad is a low key Karen, for fuck's sake. Like, <laughs> he's a mixed race Karen. All right. So, because <laughs> my dad is a bitch who likes to write letters. Okay. Let's just, he's not watching, so I can say that. But, uh, <laughs> um, okay. Do we have time for more conversation or should we try? How are we doing? Okay. Yeah. What do you guys, is it our time? Yeah, you could keep going. Okay, so Will you tell us when to turn it around to people. Yeah, um, uh, for everyone that's watching, if you want to ask a question, feel free. Just uh, type it out in the chat, and yeah, we'll read it afterwards. <laughs> yeah, but y'all could keep going. Yeah. Okay. So, um, so you write that interviewers and critics have labeled you a nine eleven author, mm -hmm. but I want to know what kind of author you consider yourself. I love that. Um, so, I mean, I really, first of all, I always say I'm a fiction writer and I'm a novelist because I don't even really write short stories that much. I'm like a novelist very much so. So even people have been sort of like maybe even disappointed that with this book that's clearly nonfiction, I'm like, by the way, I really identify as a fiction writer. And in fact, I'm a little suspicious sometimes of the personal essay form. It's not my true love, but I, I knew that I had work that I thought would be good for a book. And I know that people really like my nonfiction. So like, Boom, that's why it exists. So that's that. I definitely like don't love the 9-11 author thing because it's so weird. And it, it basically tries to claim me more as an American than an Iranian, which is really problematic. Um, God, this question is actually challenging. I mean, what sort of writer am I? Oh, 
it's I, it's so hard to say because in a way I want to say some of my heart is with experimental writing, some of my heart is with um, satire and, and sort of humor writing, dark humor. Dark humor is really my thing. That's my like favorite area, whether it's like absurdism or just like a certain type of both American and Iranian humor. One thing that I think about when I think about this question, though, is recently people have asked me about the term Iranian-American author, and it used to bother me a lot when I was younger, and I'd be like, why don't they just call me an author, you know? Or just an American author, aren't we all Americans? And like now, it's not, it's not the Iranian part that bothers me, it's actually the American part that bothers me. I don't even want the American part. Like, just call me an Iranian author. I can't, I can't back this place up anymore. Like, I don't want, I became a citizen, you know, like in my 20s, but I don't, that's already too much time because honestly, this place is so much blood here and it doesn't end. And it's a place where like, they're killing my friends and brothers and sisters and it's too ugly. And so I have really flipped in a way that I just, I actually would prefer to be thought of as an Iranian writer. It actually is true to my existence because, you know, my family was very, very Iranian. We spoke Farsi in the house. We only ate Persian food. You know, that's how I grew up. I still think in Farsi all the time. I, I wish I could write in Farsi better. I, I don't write very well. But um, it's, it's, that's the part I, I actually, you know, I'm thinking of leaving America, leaving America altogether in the next year. And I would just love it if wherever I go, they don't even think of me as an American writer. They're just like, oh, she's like a Tehran-born Iranian writer. Fine. I'm just, I'm very done with America. <laughs> <laughs> I'm right there with you. Yeah, I mean, how do we defend this place? It seems crazy. So it looks like you have a question. Okay, let's see. I could read it out. Um, okay. Alyssa's asking, could you talk a little bit about the headspace you're in when you write fiction versus nonfiction? Yeah, definitely. Um, so those are such different modes for me. So when I'm in fiction mode, I have like a certain style that I go with. And that style tends to be sort of maximalist, a little bit Baroque. Um, it is tends to flirt with experimental writing, not fully. Um, there's just a voice there that I've been writing all my books in. In fact, there's even a, a bit of a, like, I don't want to say formula, but a real structure that I write my novels in that feels very, like, like uh, easy to me at this point. Like, I, I spread a plot over, like, a certain amount of chapters, over a certain amount of pages. It's almost mathematical. And then it's just the thrill of language for me there. And, like, that's my fiction mode. And my fiction mode is just, like, you know, fairly free because I separate my, the generator from the editor in my brain very much so. So that's how I write, like where I have hours of just generating and then I do other things and then I come back and I edit that same chunk. And so in the span of a day, I have this like polished thing because it goes from generating to editing. Boom. So that's when I'm like really working hard on something. The nonfiction mode for me is more service and social justice oriented. So it, I'm not thinking about the art of the sentence as much. I'm thinking about being much more conversational. And so I'm just trying to get the ideas across. And usually, they're, you know, these essays in this book were written for places like the New York Times, CNN, Daily Beast, um, you know, Salon. These are pretty mainstream publications, so I can't get all, like, fancy and experimental and weird. I'm just trying to, like, you know, work in a way that's similar to my journalism training. It doesn't mean I can't have good senses, but it just means that I'm just trying to reach like maximum people with like basically minimum words. 
So they're very, very oppositional modes for me, but I think they're both really important. I just sort of feel happier in fiction. In some ways, I had a critic once say that they thought I was like kind of like a poet who became a fiction writer. And that's a great compliment to me because I love poetry more than anything. But I, I know my, my fiction has been described as very lyrical, but I think my nonfiction is not so much. It's much more conversational. And that's, that's like what I want. So yeah. So I think it's good to separate those modes. It can be very freeing. Um, even with non-journalism, it's very different for me than personal essays. So, yeah. Geoff is asking, is uh, Mahmoud Dalatabadi a good Iranian author to follow? Or do you have any other Iranian authors to recommend? Um, I don't know too much, actually, of his work specifically. But the Iranian writers that I follow, if you want to think like canonical Iranian writers to read, um, I always tell people to read Fulf Farrokhzad, the poet, and then Sadr Hedayat. Those are amazing, like, canonical, like, classical writers who are dead. Um, in terms of, you know, contemporary writers, you know, it's, I probably love a lot of the same stuff a lot of you guys love. Um, you know, I love Marjane Satrapi. She was, like, the ultimate for me. I was so happy when Persepolis came out. Um, gosh, there is, uh, ton of Iranian journalists. I mean, ton from Human Majd to Azadem Wavani. There's so many amazing um, journalists that I read whose books are just amazing and are actually quite literary themselves. Um, and then there's Iranians in Iran that are just being translated slowly here. And, you know, those I'm just starting to dip into and like look at their translations and stuff. But it's like, I, I sometimes don't have as much access as I would like either. So it's coming fairly like slowly at times. Um, and we have a question. Uh, or just, uh, I'm so glad you found an editor that, that understood where you were coming from and that you needed to take readers there. Did this collaboration happen right at the start or where did you have to abide editors that didn't get it before you found this one? Um, well, every, I've had four books and every book has basically had a different editor and a different publishing house, actually. Um, so, you know, there are pros and cons to all of them. My first editor was Amy Hunley at Grove Atlantic. That was a wonderful editor who I still love dearly and a great place to be, you know, have your debut. It was fantastic. Um, then I had uh, experience at Bloomsbury, which was not ideal, which an editor who was problematic, not as an editor, but as a person, there was some weird stuff that happened there. And, um, and then the third book was my memoir, Sick. I had some great editors, but I had several editors. There was constant changes there, constant new publicists. It was like Harper Collins was going through so much transition. And it was also the burden of being at like Rupert Murdoch's, like Harper Collins. I mean, it's owned by the most evil person imaginable. So I was like struggling there and some ideological levels. And then, so, you know, Knopf for writers is like, you know, very fancy and glamorous. And I just never thought I'd end up there. Except that in 2009, when my essays were starting to come out, Robin Desser, who was like VP at Knopf, originally had like written me saying she really loved my essays. And if I ever thought about doing an essay collection, but I was like so young in 2009, I wasn't even thinking about it, you know? And by the time, you know, 2017 came around I thought I could have an essay collection we sent it to them and then um you know an editor under her 
at um, took it for vintage and then also bought my next book, which is going to come out in Pantheon. So it's both Knopf Doubleday Group. So it's, yeah, it's taken a long time to figure out the right editors. And that was the same thing with my journalism and my essays too. It's very hard to find the perfect editors. And when you do find good ones, it's really fun to like keep writing for them. I just wrote for um, Shondaland, uh, Maggie Bullock. She's a great editor who was working with them there on a freelance project. But she had years before worked with me for Elle Magazine for an essay I have in this collection. It's called Blonde Girls. This is an essay about blondness. So I dyed my hair blonde. And she's just an amazing editor who I was so happy to work with again, like from Elle Magazine. And then now she's doing this like great stuff at Shondaland. Like, you know, so I, I tend to work with editors I love like over and over. And a lot of New York Times essays were with the same editor and all that. So that's a really special relationship to find editors who get you and make you better. So, yeah. Um, Yaro is asking, will Brown Album be translated and published in Iran? So the whole thing with Iran and translations and publishing is a really interesting issue. Um, we got some people actually asking about Sick, and I think they just started asking about Brown Album too. But the thing is, when they publish in Iran, it's really a weird process because they they don't really they they don't have budgets to give you like advance money, which is fine. I mean, I love Iran, so I do it anyways. But sometimes they kind of just pirate it. They don't really even ask like for proper permission or like any contracts or anything. So it's a little hard for publishers to like sign off on this. You're kind of like talking to your agent, your editor, and trying to get them to like do this thing, but it's really kind of bizarre. And even the sweet Iranians know that too. They're like apologetic when they ask you. But then on the flip side, they reach a lot of people, right? You know, tons of people in Iran who love to read a very literate country. And they also do gorgeous jobs on the printing. I mean, Iranians are so stylish. So it's always look great. So I hope we will go into the Iranian market, but it's just a weird thing. Cause it's like, usually, you know, you get paid for these things, whatever. It's just, it becomes a different sort of labor of love. But I, I want that. I mean, I, I have a lot of Iranian writers already, readers already, but they um, they just find me through like proxy servers on the internet or whatever. And they just know my work secondhand, but I would love them to like hold a book by me. So that's, so yeah, hopefully that'll happen more. Cool. Um, so before I read the last question, um, there was a comment that said, I think we may have partied together at Twilo. <laughs> I saw that. That was so funny. It's possible. <laughs> oh my god! I'm also seeing my my most beloved teacher from high school, twelfth grade, Skip Nicholson. Thing is, that was my most amazing AP English teacher, who like encouraged me so much in a school where I was fairly miserable. By That's the way, funny. he's a genius. And he's saying, "What writers do you admire and have influenced your work?" But it's funny because one of the big ones was Faulkner which I landed on in high school and I was discouraged by Mr. Boyd who was a teacher underneath him in my junior year because we were supposed to do author reports and I just like fell in love with like Faulkner's like stream of consciousness language and that really spoke to me in an Iranian sense because there was like a biblical almost ancient language there and so and then I also liked that there was so much kind of fraught, uncomfortable stuff about the South and race and all this like drama. And it felt to me like something that Iranians could relate to on some level too, like ancient empires that crumble and like, anyway, so that's a bit, Southern writers have been really, for me, important. 
And then I love a lot of just like international writers who are just barely translated. Like my favorite one is Zhen Shui, um, the Chinese avant-garde writer who's become kind of my mentor. And she lives in Beijing and that's spelled C-A-N-X-U-E. And uh, she's just brilliant. All the new directions writers and I love. You should, you should write like a list of suggested reading that we can. Yeah, I would, I will. I think somewhere it's, uh, there is going to be something coming out with me having that, but I'll do, I'll do that stuff more because I love, I love it. Cool. Um, so do, so last question, do either of you think you will write about your experiences with COVID? I sort of am doing it because I'm getting, it's funny, I always say like, I'm done writing essays, but like I'm right now working on like four essays at once. I wrote an essay about climate change that had some COVID in it. And there's another essay I'm working on for L.com that's gonna be very all about like living in Queens right now with like the pandemic center. Um, and so it's finding its way though in random pieces. I just wrote a um, book review for Book Forum and it, it was like about a book that takes place partially in Paris. And I was in Paris right before they locked down. And so there's all this COVID stuff in that even. So yeah, it's, it's I, I keep joking like, you know, let's not write about COVID, but it's definitely finding its way into the work because it's just such a surreal, crazy time. What about you, Miriam? Are you writing about it? Um, I, yeah, I mean, I will write about it, but I'm not writing about it now. I'm thinking about approaching it through correspondence. Ooh, like, yeah. I, I want to write an essay about correspondence and romanticizing sort of letter writing and, yeah. and the letter writing that I did with my cousins when I was a kid that then transitioned into a different sort of letter writing because my cousins were incarcerated. Right. So, and, and there have been so many parallels that asshole celebrities have drawn between like quarantine and incarceration but they oh don't fucking understand what it means to be actually locked the fuck up it's, and so <laughs> that's a yikes when they say yes. yeah so i want to so i want to write about covid in that context oh that's fantastic yeah that would be great yeah, I mean, how can we, I mean, it's such a crazy thing we're all going through and no one's really had this experience. I mean, it's so rare too. So it's like, yeah, I think we're all going to probably end up writing something or another, even though I'm sure for like, after this is kind of over this phase of it, we're all going to like want to escape from it. But it's definitely on our brains. Like, how can we not? Mm -hmm. uh, okay. So William is asking, what is the red drink in the cup? <laughs> and how can you Augustine? Music. Oh, I love this question. Um, the direct, someone asked the other day what I was drinking too. I don't know about these things. Um, <laughs> it's really gross. I'm embarrassed because I don't have a lot of supplies like many of us. So, um, but for some reason I have a lot of kombucha. <laughs> so it's kombucha, but then I also have run out of all alcohol. So it's kombucha spiked with tequila. It's just bad combo. <laughs> I don't recommend it. It's disgusting. Um, but you know, I like, I, I was definitely sober for several years. It wasn't a dramatic thing like that. You know, I didn't have a drinking issue really, but um, I'm definitely like, now that I'm healthier, I'm just drinking a little bit. Um, again, it helps with the weirdness of the now. And um, yeah, and I love the new August D. So this is, this is a reader who knows of my interest in K-pop. And so um, if you are K-pop fans, you should really be checking out the August D album that came out today. Um, this is an affiliate of BTS, a member of BTS, I should say. And it's so good. 
it's just been amazing. Music is really, um, really feeding me right now. More than reading. I'm not reading well. Are you reading a lot, Miriam? Um, I'm reading some, but it's hard to read. I know. It's so hard to read. I don't know why. And like, I'm not reading for pleasure. Same. I can't handle it. I like, just I can only read didactic stuff. Yeah, yeah. It's like, if it's like for something I have to do, mm-hmm. I can do it. But it's not like I'm like all like curling up with a fun no. book. No. Uh, I've been watching movies. I watched, I watched Train to Busan the other day. Have you heard that? Seen that? It's like a I movie. haven't seen it. Whoa. I don't know. If, I mean, it's a masterpiece, but it's like, a, it's a zombie thriller about a pandemic. So it's kind of crazy to watch that. But it was kind of interesting to watch it because they talk about quarantine during it too. I watched um, the documentary on Circus of Books the other day. Have you oh, seen that one? I want to see that. Okay. It's that was really fucking sad. I'm sure. It's, I mean, it's sad, but it's good. And it's an LA story. So. Yeah, yeah. I miss LA, actually. You guys in LA, I'm really proud of how you guys are dealing with it. I think you guys are doing better than we are in NYC. <laughs> but, um, we're trying. I mean, we're like, you know. It's, it's really hard. I really hope people are just trying to continue the, the distancing and all that stuff because it does work. But, you know, if you let your guard down, we're, so, we're all going to be in this forever if you don't, you know. Just, like, hang in there a little longer, guys. Yeah. Well, thank you both for being part of this reading and it's great. Um, the reading will be recorded and will be available if you want to listen to it again as a podcast um, on our Skylight Books podcast series, Skylit. Um, I put the link in the chat if anyone wants to check it out. Um, but yeah, if you two have any last remarks before we go. Just so, like if you have any other questions or comments, like you can always email me or like write me or whatever, um, social media at me, whatever. Um, I'm happy to discuss. We all have time now, so. We miss you, Miriam. I love you so much. I miss you and I love you too. And you look beautiful. Thank you. You, of course, look so beautiful as ever. You guys, you should know Miriam was really there for me in a most amazing way. I mean, when I was really ill and like dying in LA and I wrote this on social media, but like the, the one of the only people that came and saw me at the hospital was Miriam before she even knew me personally. She just came to the hospital once she'd never met me. And I was literally like on a stretcher in ER and she just like sat with me and was so normal and cool. And then like that whole summer we would just like hang out at the beach and she just got my mind off like miserable illness shit. And like we'd go to like Erewhon in LA and like laugh at how expensive all the green juices were. <laughs> oh, it was fun. We spent a lot of time um, digging our toes into the Malibu sands. Oh, I missed that. Oh, super good. Nice. Oh, nostalgia. <laughs> so much. I love you. So love I'll you see you soon. And I love you guys, Skylight. Um, support Skylight, you guys. They're such an important bookstore. Thank you. Yeah, well, have a good night, everybody. Thank you for tuning in. Thank you for listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. Please don't forget to visit our website at skylightbooks.com and make sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast for more author talks and bookseller conversations. You can find us on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Stay safe and healthy, and we hope to see you back in our store soon.
Assim